0: Hi folks, welcome back to Piercing the Darkness, the podcast dedicated to growing in faith, hope, and love towards both God and others, while exposing the kingdom of darkness. I'm Michael John Petty, your host, excited to get into part two of our new series on Exposing Catholicism. Last week, we started a new series on the show about exposing the Catholic Church. The reason for that is because throughout history and in my own personal life, there have been many who claimed that Catholicism is simply a denomination of Christianity or is, in fact, the one and true Christianity, as many Catholics claim. And while I love my fellow Catholic brothers and sisters in Christ, I cannot help but say something about this untrue claim. The truth of the matter is, Catholicism is not Christianity, though it has borrowed many many elements from the Christian faith. It distorts basic biblical doctrines and principles, turns sacred commandments into pagan rituals, and ultimately places man over God. Last week, we went over the initial history of the Catholic Church. We talked about Christian persecution in Rome, corrupted Christian bishops getting in bed with the emperors, Constantine, and the first pope, among other things. Then we discussed a few doctrinal issues, including salvation by grace plus works, the Eucharist, confession transubstantiation and how the Catholic Church views tradition, as in tradition over scripture. If you missed part one of the series where we talked about all this, please go and check it out before listening to this week's show as it will be a huge help context-wise as we dive into part two and it's full of a lot of rich information that anyone looking for the truth on the Catholic Church probably should know going into the rest of this series. But before we dive in, I want to put out the disclaimer once again that I am not condemning anyone who is Catholic who has placed their saving faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, receiving his gift of unearned grace, and submitting themselves to him as their Lord. I am not talking to my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ here, nor am I trying to say that anyone going to a Catholic church is immediately or automatically going to hell or anything of that nature. What I am saying, however, is that the Catholic church as an entity and as an idea is corrupt— Unbiblical, and ultimately preaching a wrong gospel, if you can even call it that, of works that will send people to hell, if they believe it. Again, I've known saved Catholics, men and women who placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone, yet went to Catholic Mass on Sunday. These people do exist, though from my experience, any real born again Christian is going to eventually leave Catholicism completely and join themselves to the corporate body of Christ. Please don't misunderstand my words. I understand how confusing this may seem, but please stick with me and I will show you using the Word of God why Catholicism is Satan's tool to keep people from true Bible-based Christianity. And again, I would recommend going back and listening to part one before listening to this second part in this series. There's going to be many parts after this as well. So this week, we're going to cover a few topics such as the veneration of images, prayer, gifts and sacrifices, and penance. Again, our goal here is to do as Acts 17.11 says and examine the scriptures to determine whether these things are true, and show the deceptions, delusions, and discrepancies between what the Bible teaches as the Christian faith and what Catholicism officially teaches in the Catechism, which is their source of doctrine, and what many Catholic priests and bishops actually teach out of as opposed to scripture itself. Now, let's start with the veneration of images. What does that even mean? The veneration of images. Well, the Catholic Church's definition of that is a little rocky and contradictory, but let's go directly to the Catechism on paragraph 2132 for the answer. It says, quote, The Christian veneration of images is not contrary to the first commandment which prescribes, meaning prohibits, idols. Indeed, the honor rendered to an image passes to its prototype, and whatever venerates an image venerates the person portrayed in it. The honor paid to sacred images is a respectful veneration, not the adoration due to God alone. Religious worship is not directed to images in themselves, considered as mere things, but under their distinctive aspect as images, leading us on to God incarnate. The movement toward the image does not terminate it in as image. The movement toward the image does not terminate in it as image, but tends toward that whose image it is, end quote. Okay, so that's a lot, but let's break it down quickly. First, the Catechism states that the veneration of images and that idol worship that's prohibited in both the Old and New Testaments are not the same thing. It's saying that by giving reverence to an image of a person, what you're actually doing is honoring the person that the image is in the likeness of as opposed to worshiping it. This almost makes sense though, right? We all have family pictures that we keep, and we look at fondly from time to time, and in those instances, our love or fondness is being directed towards a specific person. We're clearly not worshiping or making idols of our parents, siblings, friends, or kids when looking at their pictures lovingly, right? And that's the position the Catholic Church wants us to take with the veneration of images. The problem with that is that giving honor or reverence to an image to, quote, tend toward That whose image it is, end quote, is almost a form of necromancy in the sense that we are worshiping the dead. But we're only giving honor or reverence to someone, we're not worshiping them. Well, I beg to differ. In fact, the Catechism would beg to differ as well. Let me reread a portion of that quote I just read from paragraph 2132, where it said, quote, Religious worship is not directed to images in themselves, considered as mere things but under their distinctive aspect as images leading us on to God incarnate. The movement toward the image does not terminate in it as image, but tends toward that whose image it is, End quote. Did you catch that? The first two words of that quote, religious worship. Now tell me again that the veneration of images isn't religious worship because the Catechism just claimed that it was with the intent of leading us to God. The problem with that is that no true God would ask that we honor an image in order to worship him. In fact, God gives clear instructions throughout the Bible on not only how to worship him, but also how not to, including Exodus 20 verses four through five, which state that you shall not carve idols for yourselves in the shape of anything in the sky above or on the earth below or in the waters beneath the earth. You shall not bow down before them or worship them. Moses goes on in Deuteronomy 4 to explain this a little more in verse 16 when he says, whether it be the form of a man or of a woman. Okay, so God makes it very clear that idols are out of the picture in the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? Well, Jesus says in Luke 4 verse 8 that it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. And Michael, come on, these passages are These passages are talking about pagan idols such as Moloch or Lilith or Dagon. Clearly an image of Jesus or Mary isn't the same thing. Wrong again. Did you not hear what Jesus said in that Luke passage? Quote, him alone, as in God, shall you worship, shall you serve. That leaves Mary out. But don't worry, we're going to be spending more time on her in a future episode. For now, let's go back to God. In any event, what part of graven image don't people understand? And the idea of moving towards an image of Mary or an angel or a saint or even an image of Jesus himself would bring you closer to Christ? That's both foolish and ridiculous. Allow Pastor Joe Poesiak to explain this a little better in his book, Teachings of the Catholic Church, on page 54 when he says, So, even though the intention might be to lead one toward God, if an image of Mary or some other saint is being honored or revered with religious worship, that person is being honored or revered with religious worship. In contrast, the Bible tells us that we should worship no one but God, end quote. He goes on to conclude at the end of that chapter that, quote, even though the Catholic Church calls them sacred images and not idols, these verses, the ones that I had just read before, Tell us that one, we should not worship anything in the form of a man or a woman, and two, we should not even bow down to them. End quote. Case closed. Now, before moving on to prayer, prayer is one of the most important parts of the Christian faith. It's our direct link to God through which we need no mediator or conduit. Prayer is essential to the healthy Christian's life. So much so to the point where Jesus actually took the time not only to teach his disciples how to pray, but he did it himself in his final hours before being taken into custody and crucified. Prayer is one of those most sacred things that a Christian can do, and yet it can also be corrupted by those who don't understand its purpose or its power. In paragraph 2679 of the Catechism, it states that, quote, when we pray to her, speaking of Mary, the mother of Jesus, we are adhering with her to the plan of the Father who sends his Son to save all men, end quote. A little later, it continues on to say that, quote, we can pray with and to her, end quote. Mary isn't the only one that the Catechism gives permission to pray to, however. It also teaches that we should pray to the saints, be them men or angels. Not can, but should paragraph 2683 says the witnesses who have preceded us into the kingdom especially those whom the church recognizes as saints share in the living tradition of prayer by the example of their lives the transmission of their writings and their prayer today they contemplate god praise him and constantly care for those whom they have left on earth when they entered into the joy of their master They were put in charge of many things. Their intercession is their most exalted service to God's plan. We can and should ask them to intercede for us and for the whole world." Let me make this exceedingly and abundantly clear when I say that nowhere in Scripture is it ever said that we are to pray to Mary or the saints. In fact, there are countless times throughout all of scripture where men of God and angels are bowed down to in adoration or worship because of some great thing that they did or because they were blinding when they showed up. And immediately, these men and these angels condemned the people who bowed to them for such behavior, commanding them to worship only God. Furthermore, in this book, The Teachings of the Catholic Church, Pastor Joe references a few verses that completely disregard what the Catechism says, exposing its heresy. Philippians 4, 6 tells us to make our request known to God, not Mary or the saints. Romans 8 makes it clear that Jesus Christ in heaven and the Holy Spirit within us here on earth are the ones who intercede for us, not Mary or the saints who are dead and can't hear us. Furthermore, Hebrews 7, verse 25 echoes Paul's words, reminding us that, quote, he, as in Jesus, lives forever to make intercession for them, as in us believers, end quote. Ironically and hypocritically, the Catechism also says in paragraph 178 that we must believe in no one but God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, this is true and biblical, but it's clearly contradicted by what we read earlier, on praying to Mary of the saints, as well as the veneration of images, especially if the image being revered is of anyone other than God. So while I agree with paragraph 178 in the fact that our faith should be only in God, remember First Peter one twenty one tells us that our faith and hope are in God, the Catholic Church itself doesn't even agree, as we have already seen and will continue to see as we go on. And if you doubt that statement, go and read the Hail Mary prayer out loud. And you'll start to your skin will start to crawl, and you'll start to recognize that they actually see that this woman as equal to God. And that's scary. Now, another prayer that is incredibly common in the Catholic Church is the Lord's Prayer from Matthew six verses nine through thirteen, also known as the Our Father. Now, before people attack me, thinking that I'm condemning anyone praying the words of Jesus that He taught His disciples, please give me a moment. I am not at all saying that people shouldn't pray the Lord's Prayer, especially when they're unsure what to pray. I think Jesus' words here are wonderful, beautiful, and I've prayed them myself many a times. My buddy Kenny prays the prayer almost every day. But I also think that what Jesus says literally two verses beforehand in Matthew 6, verse 7, is equally as important as what he says in his prayer. And Jesus, when he says that, Quote, when you pray, use not vain repetitions, as the heathens do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. End quote. If you're ever, if you've ever been to Catholic Mass, you know that aside from all the sitting and standing and kneeling, there's a lot of repeat after me prayers, including the Lord's Prayer, sometimes repeated more than once. Alongside that, part of one's penance after going to confession may be to say a certain amount of Our Fathers. Again, this is a wonderful prayer and I take no issue with Christians praying it, but the point Jesus was making with the Lord's Prayer wasn't that it was the only thing that we should pray or even one of the only things that we should pray. He was trying to show us that the way in which we should pray. It's an outline that we must honor God first, thanking him and surrendering in obedience and following that up with asking for help or forgiveness or presenting any other requests we have before help, asking him to help us in spiritual warfare situations and honoring him once more. The Lord's Prayer is less of a, say this, every, this prayer every so many days, and again, like I said, more of an outline, that we may construct our own prayers with our own requests and talk to God one-on-one personally instead of just talking at him. Once again, prayer is an amazing gift and is incredibly powerful. James five sixteen says that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. So both scripture and history prove this to be true. Elijah prayed and God sent down fire from heaven. He prayed again and God held back rain for three years. And then when Elijah prayed once more, God released the rain on the ground once more and restored the land. Because of Daniel's praying three times a day under three different Babylonian rulers, he was thrown in the lion's den, and yet God delivered him. And at Pentecost, the apostles prayed, and the Holy Spirit fell upon them in power. George Mueller, a great man of prayer, once prayed that God would deliver him three sacks of flour for his orphanage. That night, they received it. Prayer is powerful, and if we keep God's commands and do the things that are pleasing in his sight, as John, as I'm sorry, First John says, whatever we ask, we will receive. It's really that simple. This next topic should be obvious to any true believer as to why this is wrong, but nevertheless, I feel the need to cover it, and that is gifts and sacrifices. Now, one wouldn't think that even the Catholic Church, which still shows a crucified Jesus on the cross, would feel the need to give sacrifices for sins, especially in light of other ideas such as confession and the Eucharist. But as it turns out, they do. Of course they do, right? In paragraph 1539 of the Catechism, it states that, quote, the priests are appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, end quote. What? That sounds an awful lot like the role of the Old Testament priests under the law given to Moses. In that law, it stated that blood sacrifices had to be given by the priests to atone for the sins of the people, since, as Leviticus says, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. But that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus paid the ultimate penalty for sin and sacrificed himself, making himself not only our high priest but our atonement for sin, so that we didn't need to sacrifice to God for our sin anymore. Now we can simply believe on Christ and receive forgiveness for what he has already done for us. And yet, the Catholic Church does not agree. They don't see Jesus' blood as enough, even though the Holy Spirit makes it clear throughout the entire New Testament that the blood is enough, that it's the only thing that's enough. The Catechism says earlier in paragraph 1,357 that, quote, this command of the Lord by celebrating the memorial of his sacrifice, in so doing, we offer to the Father what he has himself given us, the gift of his creation, bread and wine, which by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the words of Christ had become the body and blood of Christ, end quote. This goes back a little bit to what we already talked about in part one with the Eucharist and transubstantiation and how that entire concept is unbiblical, but let's keep reading with paragraph 1366 where it continues to talk about the Eucharist calling it, quote, a sacrifice because it represents the sacrifice of the cross, end quote. Why does the cross need to be represented? You know, being reminded of something that happened, like reflecting or meditating on Jesus' death and resurrection, is a good thing. Throughout scripture, God commands his children to remember what he did for them. First, in taking Israel out of Egypt, he constantly was reminding them of that in the Old Testament, even through the kings and the prophets. And now with us, us Christians, being taken out of sin and out of the world by Jesus Christ, we're constantly told to remember the gospel throughout all the epistles of the New Testament. But this is different this isn't talking about remembering. This is talking about making a new sacrifice, committing you yourself bringing forth a sacrifice in order to make Jesus' initial sacrifice effective, insinuating that without the present sacrifices that Catholics are to make, there is no forgiveness. But this simply can't be true. Hebrews 10 12 through 14 tells us that Jesus offered one sacrifice for sins and that by one offering, he has made perfect forever those who are being set apart from the evil of this world. Verse 18 goes even further to say that, quote, there is no longer offering for sin, end quote. It seems to me that whoever wrote the Catechism and teaches Catholic doctrine needs to go back to the word of God for truth instead of making doctrines out of the traditions of men. I seem to remember Jesus telling the Pharisees something very similar. Now, the last topic we're going to tackle today is the idea of penance. Now, according to paragraph 1459 of the Catechism, penance is simply the idea that, quote, raised up from sin, the sinner must still recover his full spiritual health by doing something more to make amends for his sin. He must make satisfaction for or expiate. His sins, end quote. Paragraph 1,448 adds that, quote, the church who through the bishops and his priests forgive sins in the name of Jesus Christ and determines the manner of satisfaction, end quote. Besides the fact that we know that God, that nobody but God, can forgive sins, as we talked about in part one, and that the Catholic Church has absolutely no biblical authority to do so, what the hell does determining the manner of satisfaction mean? that the church might not be satisfied with your repentance as opposed to God who according to 1 John is satisfied with our repentance regardless 1 John 2:2 2, 2 is clear that Jesus is the expiation of our sins and as Romans 3:24 through 25 teaches we are quote justified freely by his grace through the redemption of Christ Jesus whom God sent forth as an expiation through faith by his blood to prove his righteousness, end quote. We know that God's grace is a gift not to be earned or fought for. It's been given freely. So why or how, I should say, has the Catholic Church brought so many people under bondage? And part of it, I think, is because of tradition. Because for a long, long time, only the priests, only the leaders in the church were able to read the Bible or out of the Bible. And because of that, people... People were led a certain way because of how it was taught. Um, I rewatched the film The Book of Eli last night with Denzel Washington and Gary Oldman. And Gary Oldman's character, Carnegie, is after Eli's Bible the whole movie. And towards the end of the movie, he reveals that the reason he wants the Bible so badly is because the people that in the town that he runs are weak and that the words of the Bible have power. And that if he has those words, he can get them to do whatever he wants them to do. Whereas Eli's motivation, since he's being led by God, is to get the Bible to a safe place where it can be reproduced on a printing press and redistributed to individual people. So that they don't have to rely on one person interpreting the words of God and instead can search the scriptures themselves to see if these things are true, as Acts 17 said, once again, like I mentioned at the beginning of this program. The Catholic Church would really like people to believe that they need them, to be reconciled to God. And thus the Catechism states in paragraph 980 that, quote, it is through the sacrament of penance that the baptized can be reconciled with God and with the church, end quote. It goes on in paragraph 1437 to add that, quote, reading sacred scripture, praying the liturgy of the hours, and the Our Father, every sincere act of worship or devotion revives the spirit of conversion and repentance within us and contributes to the forgiveness of sins, end quote. I mean, come on, folks. Must I even go on? Yet that I might be able to accurately say that I replace the lies of the Catholic Church with the Word of Truth, I bring you to Romans five ten, which says, quote, "While we were sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son." End quote. Ephesians one seven through eight says, "In Him we have redemption by His blood, the forgiveness of transgressions, in accord with the riches of His grace that He lavished upon us." Romans six twenty three. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in the one who sent me has eternal life and will not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. And finally, the classics, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Quote, For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not from you, it is the gift of God. It is not of works, so that no one may boast, end quote. But the Catholic Church doesn't say you need penance to be saved. Not so. In fact, paragraph 1,446 says that, quote, the fathers of the church present this sacrament as the second plank, end quote. There, the planks they're talking about are the planks of salvation. Don't believe me? Paragraph 1,470 says, quote, In converting to Christ through penance and faith, the sinner passes from death to life and does not come into judgment, end quote. Paragraph 1,345, quote, For all others, whoever they may be, so that we may be found righteous by our life and actions and faithful to the commandments so as to obtain eternal salvation, end quote. Lastly, paragraph 2027, quote, moved by the Holy Spirit, we can merit for ourselves and for others all the graces needed to attain eternal life, end quote. Have we had enough? How do these passages of official Catholic doctrine compare with the words of God we have previously read? Or if Romans 519, which says, Through the obedience of one, many will be made righteous or Galatians 3, 10 through 11, which I just read this morning, which reads, For all who depend on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be every man who does not persevere in doing all the things written in the book of the law, and that no one is justified before God by the law. For the one who is righteous by faith will live. I know that this is going to be scary for some of you, Some of you may even identify as Catholic or have friends or family who identify as Catholic. And you may be questioning either your own salvation now or theirs. And if that's you, remember the words of Jesus when he said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that if you hear his words and believe on him, you are no longer in death but have passed to life. Some of you may be confused as to what this actually means. And I can understand that, especially if you've been brainwashed by the Catholic Church. So let me recommend that you read from the Holy Bible directly, instead of the Catechism, instead of listening to what a priest might say, start with the Gospel of John in the New Testament and then go on to the book of Romans and then to the epistle of the Galatians. And those, those books are not in order. Um, those are kind of scattered throughout the New Testament, but read, read them in that order. Read John, read Romans, read Galatians because they will explain to you who Jesus actually is what he actually accomplished on that cross, and the dangers of falling back into a good works mentality instead of resting in his unearned grace. That's where I go when those thoughts come into my mind. In fact, again, I went to Galatians this morning because I felt convicted of trying to do enough good things. That won't save me. And it won't save you either. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, his son, our Lord. Thank you for joining me this week on part two of my Exposing Catholicism series. If you want to learn more on the Catholic Church's doctrine and how it compares to the Bible, I definitely recommend that you check out the book, Teachings of the Catholic Church by Joe Puisiac. It was very helpful in making this podcast. Um, Joe is actually one of my pastors back home growing up. Um, he came out of the Catholic Church after being a part of it for about 30 years. And so he understood Catholic doctrine very well, and decided to dissect it from a biblical perspective. So it's it's very biblically sound, and it's really good. I'd also recommend the Know Your Enemy series of videos produced by the Fuel Project, which you can find on YouTube. Some of my information came from them, and it's just a great um, series about understanding Satan and his plan and his power and the methods and the institutions that he uses to deceive people and deceive the masses and try and keep them from Jesus Christ. It's really good. Along with that, check out part one of this series if you haven't already by going to piercingthedarknesspodcast.com, where you can listen and subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher, or just listen directly from the website. You can also contact me if you want to yell at me or give me any crap for anything I've said today. Um, I definitely welcome any comments or concerns or complaints that anyone might have. And if you have one, please contact me through the website as well. Stay tuned for part three of the series, hopefully coming sooner than later, where we'll begin the discussion on baptismal regeneration, the saints, and where they actually come from. Spoiler alert, they're mostly pagan gods. And Christ on the cross. Possibly more. So thank you again for listening. Hopefully you learned something. I know I always do. And until next week, go in peace.